My name is Nicholas Gonzalez. Thanks for coming over today. I have a very special guest today. He is a good friend of mine, and we've worked together before in the past. Uh, he is currently doing some voiceover work for some audiobooks and some games, so you may recognize his voice when he starts speaking. This is Charles. How are you doing, Charles? I'm well, thank you. Uh, how have you been doing? Pretty busy? Or at least trying Ooh. to be? Um, it has been interesting. The, um, the pandemic led to some major life decisions, one of which was to leave a house that we very, very much loved, oh. um, and had invested everything in the world into, uh, mm. but it was a five bed, five bath house and it's just the two of us. Ah. Um, it had its advantages because I was running a pretty solid Airbnb business out of the house which covered a lot, mm -hmm. um, but with the onset of COVID, that kind of not just destroyed theater, but it also destroyed that <laughs> as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And I suddenly had a, a reckoning with the fact that pretty much everything that I knew how to do, all of the fallback positions and, and things that one does, were all social. Mm -hmm. They all involved me being in an intimate space with others. And with that um, hanging over our heads, I was like, you know, we should probably downsize. Mm. So we did. And um, <laughs> that seemed it was all going fairly well. I mean, it was a lot. There was a big change and it was unexpected and it was done very, very quickly. I mean, from the first conversation about it until moving in was less than two months. Oh, wow. So um, it was all done like in hyperspeed. Um, mm -hmm. And I had some wonderful friends and it certainly helped that I had been a realtor and all of that, so yay. But <laughs> um, we got a contractor down here and my my life's mission at that point was to you know, let my husband go to work and, and do that role. And I was in charge of setting up the new house because we bought a place that, you know, it was lower on lower on the price end, but uh, gave us a lot of opportunities to um, customize it, we could say. Hmm. Uh, it needed help. <laughs> it <laughs> needs help. Gotcha. Um, but the problem is that we hired a contractor who... I don't know if you've been to South Jersey. I hadn't. I had been through it, but not really to it, to understand, to the degree of un to understand where I had moved. Mm -hmm. um, when we moved to Plainfield, it was, there was a joke, kind of, that um, a lot of the older uh, black families in particular uh, were moving out, and they were moving down south. Because they were so proud, you know. Mm -hmm. Y'all, I don't know why you're staying here. You can move to, you can move to South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi. You can go on down there. You can get a four thousand square foot house for one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. <laughs> why wouldn't you want to go? And yeah. I was like, for the same reason we left. That's why I wouldn't want to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what I learned subsequently is that I moved to the Jersey Shore, <laughs> oh. which. Oh, my God, I had no idea. <laughs> I moved right into everything I said I was trying to stay away from. <laughs> oh, boy. You got to drive 40 miles if you want something besides Chinese food and Italian food in this area. <laughs> and I kid you not, pull out a Google map. I dare you to find something. It is, <laughs> it is insane. And when you bring it up, with the pleasant locals, what they will tell you is, oh, it's so much better than it used to be. Oh, <laughs> like, that's reassuring. Exactly. <laughs> Not. <laughs> I will say that uh, our community, because we moved into an adult community, a very nice one, mind you, mm -hmm. um, is lovely. And 
so far, everyone except for our, our next door neighbors on the left mm-hmm. has been particularly warm and welcoming and gracious. Well, this one good. woman, God bless her, because she's on the on the other side of us, and she she ignored us and made herself pretty scarce. She was she was in the front yard when we first came to see the house at one point, and um, she looked and. When we stepped out of the car with the realtor, the look of horror on her face was quite clear. Mm. <laughs> there was no question about it. <laughs> um, and subsequently, we were like, I don't know, maybe three weeks into moving in. And I had gone to run an errand. And when I came back, my real my um, contractor, who's a, a rugged Italian guy, um, said, you know, your next door neighbor came over um, with like a little basket and everything to, to, to meet and greet. And she was very kind. And she was like, oh, you know, so nice to, to have you in the neighborhood. And we can't wait to, to get to know you and all this kind of, kind of stuff. And, and he said, but he had to tell her, you know, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, oh. And she took everything right back on home. <laughs> Oh wow, that's a that's a great introduction oh to God. your next door neighbor. Cracked me up. So yeah, yeah, I get. I try not to. There were periods I have to say, especially leading up to the election, because uh, mm-hmm. you couldn't be on, you couldn't be on the parkway without just caravans and caravans of of flags and trucks and things. So mm-hmm. going, my life is pretty much about going to Costco and the grocery store and Home Depot. <laughs> and I would get uh, PTSD just walking through the parking lot coming out mm-hmm. of Home Depot because all of the trucks with the flags and the stickers and the just the the you were visually accosted mm-hmm. <laughs> by all of this stuff that you would think you would only ever have to see on TV or in a movie, and it was kind of deep there for a while. But on the other hand, I haven't had any direct interaction with any of these people well that's good at least everybody's been everybody that i've spoken to has been very cool good good i suppose the social distancing has uh, helped in some way (laughs) yes i think it might have (laughs) (laughs) everybody in the neighborhood keeps talking about oh you can't wait till the clubhouse opens up there's so many activities in the in the clubhouse this and the clubhouse that and the pool and the that and and i'm like yeah i'm not gonna go on any of that it's okay y'all have fun (laughs) 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 we'll be cool so, so that's not why we called. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. It's always fun to uh, figure out, especially all the major changes that's going on in life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really what's come to happen. So I guess mm-hmm. what what that was all leading up to was the fact that um, our contractor is a decent guy, but he is still of the local mindset. So consequently, he is a lot more casual mm-hmm. about... Um, his mindset towards COVID was, was I will say, was quite casual. Mm. Consequently, he got it. He gave it to all six of his children, his wife, his mm. in-laws, and us. Oh. Which then led to the scariest moment I think I have ever had in my life. Because I, oddly enough, handled it fairly well. My husband, on the other hand, did not. And I, as a sick person, had to take him as a sicker person to the hospital. And I didn't trust anything around here. And, you know, here I am, sick as a freaking dog, trying to focus enough to drive an hour and a half back to a hospital that I knew (laughs) and Mm -hmm. felt like I could trust to drop him off with no assurance that I would get him back. Mm -hmm. Um... It was it was harrowing. It really was. So I mean, what has what have I been doing? I have been up up until then. I have been filling in with all kinds of things, mostly voice work and and just focusing on on things that I could control and contain within my space. You know, um, trying to do some collabs with people and things like that. But uh, realistically, we have been shut down for months just trying to survive just trying to exist you know Mm -hmm. and get back into some kind of health so now we are both up and running again and uh, I'm about to I just signed up I'm going to put myself through school and learn to do something 
that will set me for the next however long I'm lucky enough to be around and see how it goes, you know, because um, who knows? Who right. knows how long any of this is going to last? And, you know, if, you know, if I'm lucky enough, I mean, I've had a couple, I just recently had a, a TV audition and stuff. And, you know, the, the whole Zoom experience for that is, I mean, it's it's a blessing to not have to spend two hours prepping and getting on trains and things mm-hmm. to get in. But at the same time, trying to read an intimate scene with a reader on your screen <laughs> is just <laughs> the strangest experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's very Maybe true. Maybe I'm just showing my age on that one, but it just, it just <laughs> it's hard for me to right. feel like I've had any kind of connection. Um, mm. So that, that it's, that's really what's been happening. And um, this is a moments like this are great reminders to me that I'm connected to something much larger mm-hmm. um, and to kind of force me to put my mind back in a in a space that is is um expressive and artistic and evaluate things so i thank you for this opportunity of course always welcome so speaking of who would you like to introduce us all to today alan alan was my brother um Without sounding cliche, my mother was a saint. (laughs) She was the eldest daughter of a Methodist minister, one of six kids, and she took care of everybody and everything. And even after a failed um, marriage, she was nearing the end, the official end of that, um, because she had, uh, you know, it's women in, in, we forget what women have gone through historically, not just as a woman, but also as a black woman in her case. Um, there were some, they found some stuff after I was born. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, they would have simply gone in, had an operation, fixed it, and sent her on a merry way. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was standard practice. You see anything, you just give them a hysterectomy. They gave hysterectomies like they gave root canals. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early 60s, and that's really what it came down to. So I think I had um, I had been sweating them about, you know, I was growing up as an only child um, on a three-and-a-half-acre plot, uh, you know, in Edgewater, Maryland, which is right outside of Annapolis. So, I mean, it's not like there weren't people around, but I, I had a very cloistered existence. I mean, we didn't have... There were no neighborhood. There was no neighborhood per se. You had your plot of land. The next person had their plot of land, and and so on. So you know, you saw each other at church or at the store or something like that. But um, there weren't a whole lot of people like coming over to play with me or anything. And my cousins were. Uh, we did have. I did have cousins around, but they were different ages and very, very different from me. <laughs> and, um, I was that unique child where everybody was like, where are you from? When they would meet me. And I'm like, I'm from here. But don't worry. I'm going to go to New York. It'll be all right. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be out of your hair soon. (laughs) Just give me a few years. Um, But all that was to say that my mother, um, she was was just a caregiver in general. So she adopted. And uh, we adopted Alan. And uh, after him, we even for a while had a ward of the state. Um, and so it was my mother and my brother and myself and this ward for a while, one woman and three boys, God Mm. bless her. (laughs) Um, and, um, Alan was everything I wasn't. Alan was the kid that I thought my father wanted me to be. Mm. And in some ways it was a relief because it felt like it took a lot of pressure off me be that person um but in other ways it i actually found myself being a little jealous of him because um i wanted to fit in that comfortably you know Mm. uh which i just never did 
So, what happened? I am mm, the ripe old age of 30. I have, maybe I was actually 29. At the end of that, maybe 29. I was in a, near the end of a five-year relationship, which was not a good one. <laughs> um, I'm in New York. It's maybe one, two o'clock in the morning, and my phone rings. And um, the person on the other end of his phone introduces themselves as uh, Detective Sergeant such and such, and um, is this Charles Gray? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, and I'm sound asleep. I'm absolutely sound asleep. And uh, he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, is, is, is Alan, Alan Gray, is that your brother? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, there's been an accident and he has passed away. And my reaction was instantaneous and volatile. I was like, this is some sick fucking joke. I don't know who you are, but you need to just go away and never call again. And I hung up. And then the phone rang again, and I wouldn't answer it. And it rang again, and I wouldn't answer it. And it rang again, and it was my brother's girlfriend. And she just started crying. And I was like, holy shit, this is for real. <laughs> so then a whole bunch of things happened all at the same time. My mother went through a long period of soul-searching, finding peace within herself, finding... She studied a lot of different religions and, and ideas, and she used to go off to these ashrams periodically. And she'd just go and spend the weekend cooking and chanting and being out in the wilderness with people. Um, she had gone on one of these adventures, and I didn't have her number. Well, let me start again. She didn't have a cell phone, mm -hmm. and I didn't have the number to the ashram. So I am temping at Townley and Updike, a law firm that no longer exists in the Chrysler Building. And I had to get up and go to work. I'd gotten no sleep, obviously. And I'm sitting at the desk, losing my mind because the problem is I can't tell anybody before I tell my mother right. and I can't get a hold of her <laughs> and I just felt like my head was going to explode and in the meantime I'm sitting at this desk trying to be secretary of the day and not doing such a great job so I called people that I knew should be able to get, who would know. She has a best friend, uh, Nadine, who is still like my surrogate aunt. <laughs> and I called her, but again, I couldn't tell her why. I just said, I absolutely have to get in touch with my mother and I don't have the information. Can you figure out how I can get in touch with her? So they managed, they managed after a while and got me the number and got her, somebody went and got her from squishing chickpeas or whatever she was doing, <laughs> <laughs> and um, got her on the phone and had to tell her. So basically what we had been told was that someone had, um, he was in a sketchy part of town in D.C., and that someone had basically walked up to the window of his car, shot him, and walked away. They oh. didn't steal anything. They, there, was, there was no altercation. There was nothing. They just walked up, shot him, and walked away. And his car, he had slumped forward, and his foot was still on the gas. So his car had just kind of meandered along until it hit something and stopped. And... Um, there was just this overwhelming sensation of this can't be this does, this is this happens on television this happens to other people this doesn't happen to us we're good christians we live this way we don't curse we don't smoke we don't drink we don't do anything mm -hmm. 
<sighs> How could this possibly be real? How could this happen to us? But then again, how could it have happened to him? How frightening, how scared, how the fact that he had clearly died alone, you know, was it instantaneous? Did it, it just all of it, just all the crap that goes through your head. She came back. Now I'm from Maryland, so I had to get off work and go down to Maryland. And by the time I got there, she had gotten her sisters together and subsequent family, and we all went to the morgue to confirm him. It was late. It was like 10 o'clock at night or something, and we're driving into D.C., and we go to this morgue, and there he was. They pull back this window, and there he is on the slab. And it was just, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I can't even put into words what it felt like seeing him there, trying to process all of the stuff that could potentially have happened, having nowhere near enough information, having the police basically say, you know, there have been a lot of incidents in this part of town. It's unfortunate. There were no witnesses. No one has come forward. It's unlikely that there will be. I'd love to tell you that we're going to put a whole lot of energy into trying to track down who did this, but realistically, it's just what it is. So bottom line, another black boy died in D.C., and nobody cared. They didn't even pretend. So we went back home to deal with it. My mother went into a, um, a self-healing state, I guess. She, she kind of sat in a corner in a chair and kind of went fetal and just rocked for days. She didn't say anything. She didn't do anything. She just rocked. And I subsequently had to go to the police. The police had called because we had to claim his car. So I had to go see the car. And there was that moment of walking up to this battered car and opening the door and seeing the blood in the, in the seat and on the steering wheel and all of that, that just brought it to a whole different level of reality. And then I had to go to his apartment and clear out all of his stuff, which we did. And when I came back to the house, I was in the kitchen talking to my mother for a minute. And, you know, she was asking me how it had all gone. And I was trying not to be too graphic about it, you know, and just say, you know, I, I got what I needed to get and do what you need to do. But then I just, I don't know, something hit me and I kind of jumped up in mid-sentence and ran and went into the bathroom and I hit the floor and it was like a scene out of some movie. I emitted some, the most guttural sounds. <laughs> I, you know, it's, I didn't, I don't know if people, because until you've been there, I don't think you recognize how in touch we are with the animal that we are. <laughs> mm -hmm. I made sounds that that were somewhere between, you know, a tortured pig and and a bull being castrated with no kind of anesthesia or something. <laughs> I, it was just, it was howling. It was guttural. It was from just the depths of my chi. It was amazing. And... She came in, and she's trying to just comfort me. And I, what was, the thing was, I was processing guilt. He was my, he was my free pass. 
he was the straight one. He was the charismatic one. He was the one that was going to give her grandkids. He was going to fill in all the blanks so I didn't have to be bothered with any of that. I didn't have to worry about it. And now it was just me. And I felt his loss like I'd never felt anything in my life. And I felt like I had really let her down because there were so many things that she would not now experience because I was not inclined to change that path. I'm not going to go out and suddenly adopt a bunch of kids, you know, so she could be grandma. And it just was not in the plan. And honestly, I went into like a two-year funk. I did everything I think you can think of to try to hurt myself because I just felt guilty and bad about the whole thing. And I felt, I felt black. <laughs> and I say that because I grew up so cloistered and I went to this pissy little private school and I had, had always been treated so well and I had never dealt with any racial issues at all until I was forced to go to a public high school um, in my last two years of high school uh, because my parents got divorced and then um, we had to go to public school. And that's where I was really introduced to the idea of races not getting along. I just didn't get it. I didn't, it wasn't real for me. But it was then. And, you know, the, I could not process the fact that he had died and nobody had made any attempt whatsoever to try to find the people that had done it. The police just didn't care. The system didn't care. The whole thing was set up in a way that made me feel less than human and truly like I just didn't count. And you hear things about people not understanding the rage that people who are brought up in ghettos are dealing with on a daily basis, you know, just not understanding it. And I acknowledge I did not, but I did then. And I had to find a way back. Eventually, I got to the point where I recognize, where I, where I acknowledge fully, okay, I am fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and I have got to get back on a path because I am still here and I owe it to my mother and to everybody else that cared about me to not just, you know, toss it in with it. Mm-hmm. So um, I taught myself to knit. <laughs> <laughs> And I knit ferociously for like three years. It was it was my therapy. I went to I went to Riverside Church, and I got rid of the person that I had been with, because I recognized that this was a this was a cathartic moment where I had to I had to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. I had to eliminate all of the things that were not working. <laughs> in my life if you were not bringing something good in then you need to go it was that simple um and i press reset and began my life again wow. and um that was really kind of the way it went the good news is after that i got some major tours and then i met my husband but it wasn't until i had fully evolved as the new me coming out of that, that I was open and available. So it was, it was, his death was a journey for me. It was, it was, it was a big, big journey for me because I just couldn't process it. 
Yeah. So that is the story of Alan Simeon Gray. <laughs> he um he was an amazing he was an amazing guy. He was a big jock. <laughs> <laughs> and um a lot of fun and though we were opposites in so many ways, we got along really well. Because I think we've we we balanced, you know. I I was what he wasn't, and he was what I wasn't. So when you put us together, it actually kind of worked. Yeah, it's always interesting when you find people like that, where at first glance you you can't fathom how do these two get along, let mm-hmm. alone like enjoy each other's company. But yes, it's <laughs> it is very much a balance of you may not. 100% agree or like the same things that I do, but as long as there's that mutual respect, I think is always the key thing right. with one another. Right. Is there anything that kind of reminds you of Alan every now and then? Like, for instance, a particular place that will always remind you of him or a smell or a trinket that you may have? Tomatoes. I grow tomatoes. <laughs> okay. Um... <laughs> One of it, my mother grew tomatoes. I never liked tomatoes when I was a kid at all. He could not get enough. And he and my mother had many battles <laughs> because <laughs> he would act completely disinterested, you know, couldn't be bothered with anything. But then he would, would, he would secretly be really keeping an eye on the tomato patch. And when the day that tomato reached that point where it was absolutely perfect and ripe and ready, and my mother would come home with that, just that on her mind, because, you know, she had taken the time to grow these things, and they were glorious. They were beautiful looking. Mm-hmm. That stuff you see at state fairs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, and she had this way, because she would cut them lo- uh, long way and she would do with the mayonnaise and salt and pepper on on some bread and make it like a tomato sandwich and that would be her thing and it was just in hot still still hot from the sun nothing made her happier (laughs) or him he on the other hand would come home but he would get home before she did and he would go out and snatch that tomato up and just shove it right in his face he wouldn't even (laughs) wash it off nothing just like he's eating an apple and destroy it and she would come home and go out there and look for that tomato and be gone. Ah. And they would have words. <laughs> well, I believe that. I I definitely, um, my mother loves to grow things in the garden. And one of the things that she loves are tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. she is very particular about her tomatoes on when they're ripe and when to grab them. And we were always given the chore of pulling the weeds, but we could not pick the tomatoes unless she said it was fine. There you go. <laughs> yes, so I I agree. There's there's nothing more frightening than seeing a gardener be upset about you picking something that wasn't ready or wasn't yours. Yep. yep. <laughs> so now, I don't know why, but I have taken up growing tomatoes. I've been growing tomatoes for years now. And uh, every time, every time I go out there and pick one, I think about it. So, yeah, that that would be the thing. Tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) So you say that you guys were complete opposites. Was there anything in particular that you remember that you both appreciated or had an interest in that you kind of latched on with each other? Oddly enough, clothing. Hmm. I was a clothes whore. (laughs) I was I was excessive. I was extreme. I like I was extreme. Like my socks and my underwear always matched. I was that extreme. <laughs> I would change two or three times a day, and I don't mean like a change of shirt. I mean change entire outfits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I had my 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 clothes were an expression of my mood. The way some people do with their hair or their makeup. For me, it was clothing. And I had a ridiculous amount of clothes, and I changed all the time. And he ended up getting, uh, in high school, uh, he got jobs at malls in, in various clothing stores. And without, it was, it was, he was wearing different stuff. It was far more subtle. <laughs> 
but he ended up amass- amassing quite the collection. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we both kind of, um, we both ended up being pretty dedicated to clothing, which is really kind of comical because, I mean, now in life, I got to the point where clothing was strictly something that I wore for the sake of work. So, you know, I had, this is what I need to audition. This is what I need to be seen at these parties. This is what I need for whatever. And for my personal life, I could just wear the same pair of sweatpants all day, all week, all month, and not really care. (laughs) Especially now. Especially now. Because especially (laughs) now, I have to really be careful. Because if I, it's funny, again, how people can and will react. Mm -hmm. If I clean up well. Mm-hmm. I clean up well. Yes, you do. But when I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I'm that person that people will consciously, full-grown men will consciously just cross the street instead of having to walk by me on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> All I have to do is not shave for a few days and let my hair do whatever it's going to do and not necessarily be smiling because do we always have to have a reason? <laughs> <laughs> You know, so um, it's funny. It's very funny because, yeah, I can, uh, and when I'm in my, my renovating mode, oh, I call it my Home Depot mode, you know, and, and I can go four days basically wearing the exact same thing because it's only going to get dirty because I'm just doing stuff around the house, you know, so it's like, what am I changing for? <laughs> true. That's very true. I just keep wearing the same thing and I don't really worry about I don't look in a mirror and nobody's going to see me but my husband he knows what I look like so who cares you know I'm not <laughs> I'm just not sweating it and I will look a fright and it is really funny to see people's reaction to it but yeah if um it's funny that I would I was so obsessed with never like even jeans I wouldn't wear jeans more than twice in the course of a week because it was like oh my god to be seen in the same pair of jeans it's like again (laughs) at this point I will put on an outfit and until it can walk by itself I will just keep wearing it (laughs) 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 I just don't care I really don't care so yeah we evolve of course (laughs) of course that's the one thing that's never changes is that we all change (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I yes. just think it's uh, it's funny how we change into the things that we frequently were most opposed to. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. So with Alan, if, say, you could have 24 hours with him back, what would you guys want to do together? Fish. Go fishing. We used to do a lot of that. When I was a kid, we did a lot of camping and fishing and eating. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say I would say that progression. I'd say we would go fishing, and we'd come back, and whatever we caught, I would cook up and make some ridiculous meal, and then we would eat until we were just engorged, <laughs> and sit around and talk. I can't think of anything else. That would make sense. That would be right. That would be the right thing for us to do. Is there a particular spot that you remember fondly that you guys would go fishing? Point Lookout. Where's that? The southernmost tip of the bay, where the bay meets the ocean. And um, it's called Point Lookout, and that's where we would go. I haven't been in longer than you've been alive. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that that would be that would be the thing. You know, I think if you're gonna do a do-over, I think you want to hold on to the things that worked, and um, those were the things that worked. You know, I would I would want it wouldn't it wouldn't be right. For it to just be him, it would have to be him. You'd have to bring back him. You'd have to bring back my mother so that it could be the three of us because it really was the three of us against the world before it just became the two of us. So, P.S. First Christmas when he was the designated child that everybody, you know, and he wasn't a child. <laughs> he wasn't a child. He was 26 when he passed. Um, but, um, yeah, 
you know, he had become the designated kid. So Christmas was all about what to do for him. Mm. Um, and when we didn't have that, it was weird. It was really, really weird. The first year, we chose to go to a place called, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's called The Heritage. It's a high-end resort that the Roosevelt's had a private train that we go to. It's in West Virginia. And it's this massive compound structure, everything, um, out in the woods. And, and it's, it's, it's extreme. The meals are all like, you know, 10 course. And there's like, you sit at the, you go, you, all the, all the meals are black tie and formal and you, you sit at dinner and there's like three waiters for each person and they're oh, all standing wow. behind you while you're eating. So that anytime you move a hand or any kind of gesture or anything, there's somebody to attend to you and to take care of whatever that moment was. I don't know how we ended up there, but that was where we went for Christmas for the first year after, after he passed. And that was, uh, hmm. it was memorable, but it, it also showed me how special family and home uh, was for a holiday. How it just, um, I, I, you know, I, I respect that a lot of people do do holidays at resorts and they choose those times to go away and do whatever. But for me, the essence of a holiday is being at home with the people that know you and eating and, and all the things that go with it, whether it be bickering or being annoyed or just having a great time and playing games or watching TV or laughing at, you know, Aunt Susie who's snoring in the corner with her mouth <laughs> open and stuff, you know, all that, that, that is, that's, that's the thing that I, like when my mother passed, I kind of lost my mind again, but in a much, much more controlled fashion. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of it was the sense of the loss of family. She was the last of her siblings to pass you know she was the last of six kids to go they had been those six kids and they they had all had kids um but next generation wise we didn't we didn't fare as well we didn't have the sense of community that they have we don't really stay in touch there's one one cousin on my mother's side that i am in to this day in touch with and that is it mm -hmm. and that is the side of the family where there are hundreds of us i know out there but I, we just don't we just don't have any kind of real connection mm -hmm. and it's if i've ever felt anything i felt just a profound loss of that sense of community um that comes with family you know when my mother passed i had a profound sense of loss not just in losing her, but that regret that I had not had kids. Because to lose her and then to turn to my own offspring, you know, as, as that, that kind of primal love would have been so much more comforting than to not, you know, to, to, to recognize that the, um, the family name ends with me and it's just uh, I don't know it's something that I still kind of process and, and have to acknowledge that uh, I've chosen to just attack it in a different way you know um, my my way is to be there and to like a godparent I guess would probably be the, the best example I, I take on kind of a, a godfather role in the lives of a number of people um, because I don't have kids. So I have real input and they turn to me and come to me and ask advice and stuff. And, and I feel like I have, you know, um, I am able to plant a seed 
to do mm-hmm. some good, to 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 offer up what I can and, and share some 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 knowledge, and uh, if nothing else, just steer them away from my mistakes. But isn't that what we all try to in in the process? <laughs> we generally steer people right into the same shit. But um, true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, I I that's been that has had to, had to become my outlet for that because I simply don't I don't have a whole lot of other options at this point you know I had seriously thought about um, adopting or acting as a surrogate kind of um, not a surrogate a, a foster parent um, mostly in respect to uh, the whole kids in cages thing you know mm-hmm. because I thought I know a lot of people aren't wouldn't necessarily be thrilled about the idea of too elderly. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta get my mind around that. Too older, <laughs> too mature gay men um, acting as uh, you know a fill-in family for these kids, but is better than what they're going through. Yeah. And, you know, I thought that would be a really great way to to give back and to, I don't know, create some sort of legacy. But at the same time, then the reality of life comes in and we're so busy just trying to keep ourselves afloat. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even fathom bringing a child in and, you know, trying to deal with covering their their basic needs and health care and running them to school in the morning and all of that and it's like oof so i don't know i haven't i haven't given up on it again if uh if my plans work out and i get the education that i'm seeking now and uh, am able to be in a more recession proof type field and bring in the funds necessary it's it's still very possible that i may find a way to um contribute to the lives of some youths and to hopefully do what i can to make up for the atrocities that have befallen them yeah no i think that's a very that's a very noble way of thinking and it's I think right now, especially in these days, it's kind of the mindset that everyone is starting to adopt to try and move forward and heal in some ways, both ourselves and those who have been greatly affected by all the changes happening around us. Yeah. It's necessary. I think it's it's very, very necessary. It is. Yeah. Well, thank you again for stopping by and introducing us all to Alan and sharing your process with all of this absolutely it's it's uh you know it's messy but it's me (laughs) um i think everything real is a little messy we we've gotten so accustomed to whitewashing stuff um especially in the media we only ever see the the extremes you see the absolute worst of everything that's the first thing that comes up Mm -hmm. and if you're fortunate and you dig enough, then you see the absolute best of whatever's going on in someone's life. But you never see, you never see the process. Yeah. And that's where I'm most interested. That's where that's the part where I'm intrigued. That's the part that uh, I think is most essential. Because without sharing that, then people have unrealistic expectations on themselves as to what how they should go through things, you know, and, and, and what's expected of them and, and, and not realize that there are, there are resources and, and there's a lot of strength in sharing if you share with the right people. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I definitely so, agree. Yeah. Yeah. If people want to find you in social media or to find your work, what would be the best way to do that? Um, well, I would tell you to Google Charles Gray, but the first thing you're going to come up with is the old white man from Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but if you keep digging, you'll get around to me. Or you could go to YouTube and look for Karaoke Chronicles, and that will definitely lead you to some cover songs that I have done that are out there. 
Um, but if you look hard enough, you'll find my webpage, which really is just Charles Gray. <laughs> um, and uh, that'll probably give you the most comprehensive view of, of what I've done and what I've got going on. Great. Well, I hope everyone does check that out. The um, the YouTube one definitely sounds interesting. Um, I'm intrigued to see what all different covers you've come up with. <laughs> well, actually, you know, the one I will plug, if you have to mm-hmm. give me that opportunity, is um, I did a uh, a dance version of Elvis's Can't Help Falling in Love With You. I know it's an old, sappy ballad, <laughs> um, 50-year-old song, but I just thought it was a lot of fun. And uh, I got to work with a really cool producer, and um, we did, I think, a very fun, uh, somewhat nostalgic club version of the song. And I'm, I'm actually quite proud of it. It's, it's, on, um, it's on everything. It's on Google. It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's pretty much anywhere that any, any streaming service out there. Just look for Can't Help Falling in Love with You, Charles Gray. And it a y by the way, G-R-A-Y. Um, <laughs> and it should pop up. And uh, I think I think people will can enjoy that. I, I just actually kind of reposted it for Valentine's Day because it's always good to have a little love floating around out there. It is, yes. I think that's always <laughs> it's always good to share love in any way possible. Indeed. Lovely. Well, thank you. This has been fun. Thank you all for stopping by and meeting Alan. Feel free to rate and subscribe to us here. If you want to reach out and share your own stories, feel free to email us at storiesattheofrenda at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at storiesattheofrenda. Be safe out there, and we'll see you all soon. Te quiero.